Please give your attention to a reading from God's Word. Psalm 89. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and will build your throne for all generations. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings on earth, of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. This is the word of the Lord. So today's message is entitled, The Father's Covenant, Faithfulness to the Son. And at the onset, I want to encourage you the next time you approach the Old Testament scriptures, when you see these sorts of phrases like covenant faithfulness or steadfast love, they're interchangeable. Wherever you see steadfast love, you can swap out, for the most part, a phrase covenant faithfulness, and they will be, they're they're synonymous, if you will. They have different meanings, but they are essentially the same idea. And we're going to unpack what that means today. We've done this quite a bit in the history of Israel, but I want to do it today as Ethan, uh, the the attribution here, uh, a mascal of Ethan, as Ethan perceives by the Holy Spirit that covenant faithfulness not being given to David the king, but rather to David's son, the greater David, of whom David was the, the type, 
That is to say that David and the, his covenant, as we're going to see in this psalm, are a mere impression of the greater, more glorious, eternal covenant. And my aim today is to show you how, in this psalm, the psalmist is putting forth this grand, almost scandalous idea that the love of the Father is the love for the Son and for us. That somehow, by His grace, the Father has lavished, the Father who has lavished His love upon the Son has saw fit to allow that love to be for you and for me. That that very same love dwells within us. And this is, I believe, what Paul is talking about. We, we, uh, before Advent began, the, the first week uh, before Advent, we, we spent time in Ephesians 1. And his grand prayer is that, the, that God would give to us a spirit of wisdom and understanding or a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him to understand what is his power to us and what his love is to us. That we would be able to understand how high and wide and, and great and deep, how wonderful and all-encompassing is that love. And the reason why this is so important for us as Christians is because we have wrong views of the Father. We attribute evil that our fathers have done onto the Heavenly Father. And it is, it is sin on our part, but the way that God delivers us from this sin is by demonstrating that when he says, this is my beloved son, that that rebounds or it echoes to all those who are sons and daughters in Christ. And so we're going to be looking at very common Advent themes, specifically that Christ is a so-called father of his children. I want to look at four portions of scripture here today. First, these first four verses as the writer's perspective. We're going to look at why was the Bible given to us, and specifically, how did Ethan perceive these great things of this conversation that we just heard between the Father speaking over the Messiah, or speaking to and about the Messiah. I want to move from that to beginning to examine the verses in the reading at verse 19 all the way through about uh, 27. Uh, or 28, looking at the eternal covenant that the Father has made with the Son by the Holy Spirit. That is to say that although this psalmist is writing about David, in a sense he is writing a much greater story or, or oracle, if you will, a prophecy in poetic form about not the glory of David, the king in Israel, but the greater David, the Messiah, the one who is anointed by his God, to reign on the throne of David. And we're going to see very clearly how that can be the only interpretation because of the language which is used to speak of this David, the Messiah, not David the king, the earthly king, the son of Jesse, but rather this language that Ethan uses as he's weaving this psalm speaks and it hints very strongly. In fact, it almost drives us to the necessity to interpret it of someone who is no mere man. Moving on from that, we're going to look at God's faithfulness to the offspring of this David, 
which is clearly a multitude of people, not a singular person, and it's a people who sin. So just at the onset, I I hope to bring this back up, but if I don't remember to do it, many times when we read in the scriptures the promises given to the patriarchs, especially the promise given to Abraham, Paul interprets that promise offspring as singular. And if you were here this year in our church, we we talked a, a number of times in our sermons about this notion that through this one offspring, God has multiplied a people. And so describing, Paul says that the offspring was not referring to many, but to one. And yet the promises are given to Abraham that your offspring will be multiplied. That exact same theme is at work in this passage. But very clearly, when, when offspring is used here in these verses, it is describing the people who come through David. We're going to look at that real closely. And then final, finally, I want to look at the surety of the eternal gospel. That is, what is the hope and grounding for all of our, uh, what, what is the foundation for? What's the justification for? How can we be certain that our gospel is eternal? That, that the gospel which God proclaims to men is not a promise for a time or a promise conditional on obedience in the future or a promise given on the basis of our obedience, but rather is an eternal gospel. It is a gospel that is given and it is placed upon the Son for his people. We're going to look at that very clearly at the end. My whole aim and goal is to get you to be able to see by the help of the Holy Spirit that the covenant that the Father made with the Son to establish salvation is the same covenant that he makes with his people. It is not a separate covenant. It is not a conditional covenant, but is guaranteed in these verses as an eternal reality that does not change. So let us begin. At the beginning, we see in these first few verses an inscription, and it says, A mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. And there's some debate as to who this Ethan was. There was a descendant of Judah who was named Ethan, and yet that Ethan lived uh, only a few hundred years before the King David. And so if we interpret Ethan as the one who descended just a few generations from Judah, we might miss what is going on. Uh, It is surely not Ethan the Ezraite in that sense. It is a man named Ethan. He is of the tribe that came probably through a person named Ezra. But again, it would be a mistake to describe that Ezraite as all those who were the children of Ezra. Because um, even though Ezra is the only significant person in the scriptures named Ezra, Ezra was a common name, just as in our culture we have people named John or Matthew or, or Jim, James. All of these names are very common. So, so it's very difficult for us to identify exactly who this person is. And in fact, if we spent much time on it, it would be a distraction. The point is not who Ethan is, The point is, what was he attempting to convey? What was he attempting to communicate? And how did he communicate it to his people? And what would they have thought about when they read this passage? Although Ethan does write this psalm, the ultimate author is not Ethan, but it is the Holy Spirit. And the reason why we have to arrive at that position is because we don't have enough 
understanding of who Ethan actually was to be able to just place our trust in Ethan as a person. We know ultimately that all of Scripture is breathed out by the Holy Spirit, and it is useful for instruction. It is useful for training in righteousness, and that is chiefly to understand Christ. So ultimately, Ethan's authorship is superintended by the Holy Spirit. What do we mean by this? For example, when Joseph was in captivity in the land of Egypt, his brothers finally come to him in the great resolution of that story arc. And, and Joseph says, by the Holy Spirit, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so we see Joseph acknowledges the sin of his brothers. They had a purpose. They meant that activity for evil. And then he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So, so this idea is the brothers have a purpose and God has a purpose which he superimposes upon and places on the human activity. That is, the brothers who sin against Joseph in the natural, who, who commit a sin on a human level, God is so gracious and so sovereign and so powerful that he's able to wield authority on top of that evil to bring out a good result and reverse the curse and bring a blessing instead. This is exactly what we understand to be the understanding of the plenary inspiration of Scripture. That just simply means that the Holy Spirit, as he breathes out the scripture is superimposing a purpose that the author is possibly aware of and possibly not aware of. Surely we understand that scriptural authors did not see everything that they even themselves wrote. We know this to be the case. Nevertheless, we understand that this psalm is not talking simply about a man named David, the son of Jesse, who was a king of Israel. Rather, understanding this greater purpose, we see that Ethan is not writing on a human level. He is writing by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter lays out an understanding that the prophets who came beforehand, they prophesied, but they didn't just prophesy, they also diligently searched and inquired in the rest of the scriptures. What does that mean? I believe Peter's referring to the prophets who are going back and reading the Psalms and the Psalm writers who are going back and reading the law of Moses, the, five, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And, and then he goes on to say, therefore set your hope all the more earnestly on your, you know, on your faith. And I think what, the Psalm, the, what uh, First Peter is saying there is he's saying if the prophets of old diligently searched and inquired in the scriptures, then the way that we set our hope is to all the more diligently search and inquire in the scriptures. So doing that in this passage reveals a great and wonderful vision of this person named David. By the Spirit, Ethan hears into a conversation that he did not have the ability or a privilege to hear. He hears by the Spirit the eternal counsel of God, which was spoken before Ethan existed. Uh, in Genesis 1.26, we see a very similar example of this. Moses, who is writing the creation account, hears the purposes of God in Genesis 1.26. Uh, it, it says, and God said, let us make man in our image. 
You see, God is speaking in a group there. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are having counsel together. And Moses, by the Spirit of God, is able to hear, so to speak, a counsel or a piece of wisdom for why God made man. This is a common theme in Scripture. This psalmist here in verse 2 is hearing something that wasn't uttered in his day. It was uttered from long ago. Verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Ethan is putting forth his purpose. He's wanting to describe in this psalm the eternal purposes and plans of God and let all of the generations of the church or the community of the redeemed know what God's purpose was. Verse 2, for I said steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Ethan has some sort of faith. I believed, therefore I spoke. He, he is giving an accounting of what he's just heard. This is kind of an introduction to the whole psalm. He says that God's steadfast love will be built up forever and he will establish faithfulness. Why? Because of verse 3. The psalmist here extols the beauty of God's steadfast love, that is his covenant faithfulness, which is shown by God to his son David. And this understanding, as we're about to see, cannot exist on a human level. It is far too great to be describing any mere human. Any mere human king cannot do the sort of things that are spoken of of this son named David. For example, verse 25, just jumping ahead very closely, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. How many of you have been to the beach? You know that the sea is not within touching distance of a river, right? What, it, what it, the vision here is of this king, that his hands, which will be established on the sea and the river, they will spread his power over that region that's contained between the sea and the river. So just really quickly, immediately, we see Ethan is not describing David, the son of Jesse. He is speaking by the Holy Spirit of a greater David. Verse three, you have said, here he's, he's repeating back what he's heard of the counsel of God concerning this one. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and will build your throne for all generations. Now, clearly, the covenant of David was made with David, but as I said before and would assert again, the covenant with David is a mere shadow and precursor to a greater covenant. This word that we often use, type, is very special to me. I'm a person who loves typography and design. I, I always say, I can't make design, but I can tell you what's wrong with it. And that's that's actually very common. Most people are able to see, oh, there's a comma missing. Or, but they're not able to, to do the work of typesetting and designing. And why is that important? It's, be, it's because we have built within us a, an ability to recognize pattern and impression. If you've never had the, the privilege of seeing one, in, one of the old-fashioned typewriters, I would encourage you, go to maybe Goodwill or, or you know, some sort of thrift store and find an old typewriter just to see what it looks like. They're amazing devices. They have these arms and on each of the arms is an impression. It's a character 
and it's cast out of either aluminum or steel or some form of tin. And that, that item, that type, that character, hits a piece of paper that has ink on it, and then that presses into a piece of, another piece of paper, the actual paper that you're typing on. For those of you who've only seen smartphones, this is, this is blowing your, your minds right now. But the reason it's called typing is because that arm comes down, it hits a piece of ink-filled paper, and then it gets impressed upon a blank paper, and the impression made in the paper is less significant, it's less glorious than the arm with the character on it. The arm with the character on it is the substance, and its impression made in the paper is a shadow of the reality. That's what I believe God does through all of Scripture with types. David, had a re- he was a real character, if you will. Mixing metaphors there, but it's quite clear. David was an impression of Jesus, or the Messiah, and the covenant made with David had some very similar characteristics of the eternal covenant. But clearly, through these verses, we understand David is not, or excuse me, Ethan is not writing about David, the son of Jesse. He's writing about the Messiah, one who is the son of God. Uh, if you ever get some time, I would encourage you, if you haven't read 2 Samuel 7, read it and think about the promises given to David by God to make a house for my name or a house for, for Yahweh's name, that that promise is actually the eternal covenant. It's a ripple of, or it's, you know, if you throw a pebble into a, into a pond, it makes a, it strikes the surface and then ripples come out from the center of the pond or wherever the, the stone struck the surface of the water. It's a ripple of the eternal covenant. It, it has some of the same characteristics, but it is not the substance. So this oracle, that is this psalm filled with poetic symbolism and structure, it reveals a covenant which is spoken of old, as Ethan says here in verse 19. He says, of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said. Now, who is he talking about here? I believe he's saying that God, the Father, is the one who spoke to his godly one, the Son. And here he's saying, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. If you remember the great promise given from Moses to the people is, God will raise up a prophet like unto me from amidst your brothers. I have exalted one chosen from the people. This covenant made in the eternal counsel of God is nothing less than the delegation of the Father investing authority and purpose in the Son. That is, he is saying, I am going to establish within you mighty help, mighty, mighty substance, mighty provision, mighty power for you to establish my purposes for the Son to be the Messiah and to be the executor of the will of God. Now, on a human level, when we talk about wills and executors of wills, uh, whenever we designate someone to execute our will, we by nature are conveying them with authority and power. If you've ever had to do any sort of medical care for especially older parents or older people, 
Sometimes they have these letters which are called powers of attorney. And the substance of the power of the attorney is basically investing a trusted person with the ability to carry out your wishes. And so what's going on here is Ethan, by the Spirit of God, is hearing the Father's lavishing of great love and authority and power onto the Son. And we, by the Holy Spirit, are able to hear into these counsels. Verse 20, I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him. Now clearly, we see that there is something greater going on than David the son of Jesse. Who anointed David the son of Jesse? Samuel. And yet here, this one, the one who's in this eternal conversation is saying, I anointed him with oil. And what did, what did he do? So I, I did it for this purpose, so that my hand shall be established with him. Now, clearly, David, the son of Jesse, did establish, in a sense, some of the purposes of God. And yet we know, if we're students of the scripture, we know they were not established by David. What happened when David committed sin against God? He committed sin by stealing another man's wife, murdering that man, and covering it up so that the entire nation did not know. And because of this great sin, a sword was unleashed against his house. Why is that important? Remember 2 Samuel 7. What did God say he was going to make for David? A house. And his sins unleashed a sword against the house that God was going to make. Later, when David purposed to make a house for God, a temple for God to live in, God then told David, you can't make it. Why? because you're a man of bloodshed. Most people misinterpret that. They think, oh, well, David was a man of war. Therefore, he, you know, he, he had to be a pacifist in order to build the temple. That's not what God is condemning him for or, or chastising him for. The, what, how was he a man of bloodshed? He was a man of bloodshed because he murdered Uriah, not because he carried out war. That has, the righteous war that David carried out has nothing to do with the evil of secretly murdering a man. If you were here when we examined, um, I think it was Psalm 42. I, I can't remember the Psalm number at the moment. But we, we looked in great detail about the nature of David's sin. And one of the things that is so heartbreaking, and it, and it reveals in a very clear picture, the quality of David's deception, he gives Uriah a letter and Uriah takes that letter to the battlefront, and he, as a faithful servant, carries the letter to his commander, and that's the letter which gives the instruction to put him at the forefront of the line and withdraw when the battle is strong. Can you think about that for a second? You've been given a piece of paper that is going to ensure your ultimate demise, and to make the story more ironic, as a faithful servant, you don't read the letter before you hand it over. This is the sort of sin that David did. This is how David was a man of bloodshed. He sent Uriah with a death note and he placed it in his hand, knowing exactly what would happen. That was the king of the nation. This is the sort of sin that David uh, gave into, that David was overcome by. And so clearly we can see from these verses, in verse 21, that David did, in a sense, do the purposes of God, but the person being spoken of here 
is one who will fully establish God's purposes. Who's one, he is one whose arm, who Yahweh's arm will be firmly established. Verse 21, so my hand will be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. You see, this has to be talking about someone more than a mere man. Which man can strengthen the arm of Yahweh? No man can strengthen the arm of Yahweh. No mere man. Nevertheless, the father's approval of the son rests on the son's perfection and his power to accomplish the purposes of God. Yahweh does not set his love upon his son in a way that is filled with any doubt or any uncertainty about his ability to perform his will. Nevertheless, even though he is firmly and fully in Uh, endorsing his son and his son's ability to bring to pass the eternal covenant of redemption. Nevertheless, the father does not leave the son to do it on his own. This is the sort of love, the covenant faithfulness that the father has for the son. The son is seen in this verse as anointed of the spirit, that is the oil of gladness, to execute his mission. This is what we mean by the word Messiah. It's, it's often used in Christian circles, but the word Messiah simply means the one who is anointed by God to sit on the throne of his father, David. That is what we mean when we talk about the Christ. Christ, again, is the same word as Messiah. It just means the one who's been anointed by God for a specific purpose. He's been designated for a function. That's what anointing uh, means in the scriptures. It means setting apart the son to be the Messiah, to be the one to reign in David's place and in David's stead on David's throne. The father is both confident in the son's ability and is immediately quick to give him help. Isn't this an interesting picture of a father? We often think of overbearing fathers who give their children too much to do and then let their kids go and then are totally surprised when their children are not able to do the thing that they've been instructed to do. This is, that would be, and you know, if a father does that and then becomes angry with his children, that would be an overbearing father-child relationship. That is not what we see in the father's help of his son. Verse 22, the enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. You see, the father has complete confidence in his son's ability to perform the work of salvation. And nevertheless, the father's great love for the son is there as a guiding and a caring and a protecting love. It is there as a love which oversees and watches over his son and protects him as he lives. And interestingly, at this point of the year, it might be common for us to think about a defenseless Christ child. But as that defenseless Christ child is lying there in that manger, he is not left up to chance. Even at the beginning of the incarnation, as we get to celebrate Christmas here in a few weeks, we, we often have these vague notions of this kind of naivete around the father sending the son to accomplish salvation as if there was some chance that the father was, didn't know what he was doing or, or that he was putting his son in inordinate risk and inordinate danger. We, of course, know right as soon as Christ is born, the Magi come and report back to Herod and, and uh, Herod wants to kill all of the children, Right? 
And we, we kind of have this notion of, boy, if things don't work out right, Jesus could really be in trouble here. And on a certain level, that's true. But on a much greater level, this verse is happening. That is to say, though evil appears to win for a time, Herod's outburst against the children in Judea, and specifically Bethlehem, is like a death rattle. Do you know what a death rattle is? It's like when when someone is dying and they're near death, they begin to lose air and they lose the ability to breathe. And so they, they begin to make noises as they gasp for breath because they're losing control of their own lungs. And as macabre as that picture is, I think that's what's going on when Herod, the great lover of power and authority, uses his last tool to try to kill the Christ child, it's to murder. And he doesn't murder the Christ child, he just murders a bunch of innocent children who have not committed any sin of their own. You see, this is the great foil of God against the powers of men. He's demonstrating the folly of murder, the folly of sin, the the folly of evil. And all the while, he is crushing Herod while Herod is attacking children. It's, It's an amazing thing to understand, but evil itself is being crushed even as it looks like the Messiah will be crushed. Why is it important to see that level of the story? Because that is the entire theme of Christ's ministry and ultimately his death. At the greatest point when Christ is surrounded by his enemies, God the Father is actually crushing Christ's enemies and establishing his son even as his son is dying. The father here promises perpetual covenant mercies to his son such that he will not leave his son or forsake his son ultimately. And this sort of mercy given to his son is again, as we saw earlier, is given to someone who could not be a mere human. Verse 24, my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Horn uh, doesn't mean an actual, it's, it's a tricky word to translate in the English. It means cause or purpose. It doesn't mean an actual um, physical horn, like a, a goat's horn or a cow's horn. It's not talking about that. It's talking about plan, purpose, cause. Um, we think of nonprofit organizations who have a mission. That's what the word horn means. That is to say, God is promising of this David that his horn or his purpose will be established because of his covenant love. I will set his hand, verse 25, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. We already saw again how that's an impossible thing to take place for a human. I want you to imagine, just if you know of a picture of the nation of Israel, just zoom out and you've got a mighty large person who is able to touch the sea and the Euphrates. It's someone who is able to wield superhuman authority and power. So the love from the Father then is seen in great detail that it's persistent and clear and will not ever fade and will not ever be removed and it won't leave him up to be susceptible to evil plans and those evil people will not succeed but they will be struck down and crushed and destroyed. And that very same love, that covenant faithfulness which is set on his son then amazingly, audaciously, is then said to be on those who come through the Son, 
In verse 26, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. In the gospels, we hear the father speak over the son in his ministry. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And at another point in the transfiguration, he says it again, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. What's so interesting about that is we we hear an event happening from the father to the son at two moments in Christ's ministry. And yet, according to verse 26, this is really what Christ is always saying moment by moment from his heart. I'm convinced that Christ in his earthly life, not just his ministry, but specifically his life, was in a constant state of perpetual obedience to the Father through love. That is, Christ knew who the Father was, had encountered the Father's love, and was reciprocating that love. Love that is not returned is not full love. If you've ever loved a, a, a young lady, or if you're a man, if, you know, if, you, if you've ever or if you're women, you've ever loved a young man, you might have experienced unrequited love. And I can tell you from my experience, and many poets of the world can tell you, unrequited love is the worst sort of love. And here, there's nothing like that in view at all. All of the love that the Father has for the Son is received, and it responds It is accepted and then it becomes the motivation for his obedience. That the son is constantly saying, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. You see, we often talk about faith in Jesus Christ, but it's important to understand that Jesus Christ himself had faith in his father. It's not just the faith in Jesus Christ by which we're saved, it's the faith of Jesus Christ that the faith which Christ had for his father and caused him to perpetually offer up his life as a willing sacrifice. Verse 27, and I will make him the firstborn and his, uh, excuse me, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Real briefly, this word firstborn does not mean that he's taking Adam's place in a biological sense. It also does not mean that the Son or the Messiah had a time when he was not, but rather, in the Scriptures, the firstborn just means the one who has the right to inherit. If you remember Jacob and Esau, Esau was born first. Jacob, by the prophecy of God, was the one to inherit, right? This is God superimposing his authority over the human events. So when it says, I will make him the firstborn, what he's doing is he is establishing his son as the one who has the right to all of creation and all of humankind and all of God's people. And he will be the highest of the kings of the earth. The father then promises to bestow the very same love that he has for the son on the, one who, the ones who come through the son. And this is where this passage becomes deeply precious to us if it isn't already. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. I want you to think about that. Steadfast love that exists forever. If you've ever had a person that you've loved, whether you've been in a dating relationship or in a marriage or even with your parents or with your children, you know that your love for them is not eternal. 
if you're honest with yourselves, you'll, you'll recognize that your love quickly runs out. Now, in this case, the father and the son never have any strife between them. But nevertheless, this sort of quality of love, which is eternal and doesn't change, it is divine love. And in fact, God himself is the only one who can love in this fashion because to love someone eternally means that you exist eternally. And we as humans, we're weak. We change in degree and quality of our love. We wax and we wane in passion and desire for the object of our love. Nevertheless, God's love is an eternal love. And as impossible as it may seem to believe, that very same love, the exact same love, is then communicated to us as God's people. Verse 29, I will establish his offspring forever. My steadfast love will be for him forever. And then he goes on to say, and I will establish his offspring forever. In the very next verse, saying to us that we will be loved by God for eternity. Those who put their faith in Christ become Christ's spiritual children. We've talked in prior Advent seasons about Isaiah, and Isaiah has this phrase describing the one who is to come in to rescue his people, and the phrase is, he will be called the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And many people get hung up because they say, oh, this is talking about the Son, but he was just called the everlasting Father. How does that work? Well, it just simply works in this way. The New Testament and indeed the entire scriptures speak of those who come through Jesus Christ look to Christ in a spiritual sense as their father. Not capital F father, but rather a spiritual father seen in the language and poetry of scripture. Though Christ is not the father, he is called the everlasting father of those who put their faith in him. In John 1, it says that those who believed in him, he gave them the right to become sons of God. And so Jesus Christ is seen as the one through whom adoption happens and who, the one through whom we who were children of wrath, as Paul calls us, they become children of God. This great translation from futility and worthlessness and purposelessness into a new kingdom in which we are not just subjects, but we are children of the king. And so here, this love for the Father then is translated or, or transcribed, given to the, the children who come through this Messiah. The, the Father promises here to keep his offspring with the very same love that he has for his son. Rather than let them be destroyed by their sins and passions, he promises by grace to deliver them from ongoing iniquity and to not give them up to futility and purposelessness. Verse 30, if his children, that is, if the Messiah's spiritual children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, here this is uh, repeating the same theme in two verses to make us pay all the more attention. God's saying, if they don't keep my laws, if they transgress my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Now that sounds bad. I don't want to be punished with a rod. But look at the next verse. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my, faith, uh, to my faithfulness. You see, 
in these verses by the Holy Spirit inspiring Ethan to behold an eternal conversation the very same t- at the very same time or moment, if you will, that God makes a covenant with his son, he also is making a covenant with you, even though you do not yet exist, so to speak. The point is that it is not a separate covenant. It's not an add-on to the eternal covenant. Your perseverance is not an afterthought in God's plan. It is in the plan from the beginning. How wonderful is this promise that if that it shows the heart of the Father, he will not abandon his children to futility. So often when we think of sin, we only think in categories of sin is going to be judged, I ought not to sin because I want... That is true, we should not sin because sin brings death and sin unleashes death and sin is rebellion against God. But another whole aspect of what sin does to us as the New Testament shows us clearly, sin wages war against us. The, the flesh lusts against the spirit, or it, its desires are against the spirit, and the spirit's desires are against the flesh. That sin is not just a transgression of God, it is that, it also is a destruction of who we were created to be. That is, I shouldn't only not sin because it brings a separation, but I also shouldn't sin because it's a warping of myself. If you've ever given into ongoing, indwelling sin that you've stopped fighting against, you will, you will see, if God is gracious to deliver you from that slipping, you will see changes in your affections and desires. This is so quick to happen in the heart of a believer who gives in to complacency against a form of sin. They begin to love what they are sinning with and they eventually stop warring even in in conscience. They stop warring even in pretense and they just give in to it fully such that their affections are warped to that sin. And this is the grace of God in this passage, is he doesn't leave them up to their own iniquity. Romans 1, what what does God say? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and wickedness of men. How? Not in fire and brimstone yet. It's revealed because God gives them up to their futility. He lets go of the leash, if you will, and they run headlong after what they desire. Here, that is not what God does. Here in these verses, he says, as a part of his grace, as a part of his covenant, if they sin, I will correct them. I will discipline them. In the father's words, to give up his children to their iniquities would be to violate his promise to the Messiah in the eternal covenant. Why is that? Because the eternal covenant does not create sinless human beings. And so, if God were to make a promise to his son, son, I'm investing all authority in you to carry out the eternal plan of redemption. If God gave him that authority and promise and then put a escape hatch or or an escape clause in the rest of the covenant, it would violate the covenant. Why? Because the son's work of atonement does not completely sanctify us from the moment that we first put our faith in Christ. That sanctification, as we all experience, is worked out over time. It is perfect for sanctification. It is perfect for justification. But we do not become sinless people overnight. 
If you've ever believed in Christ for even a minute, you will know the truth of that statement. You do not become perfect on, for, on the moment you first believe. Nevertheless, God includes it as part of his covenant that he will correct, direct, and rebuke his people such that they will turn back to him. They go astray in their heart. They break his law. They turn away from his covenants and go after sinful things. They make idols. They commit adulteries. They murder in their heart. They backstab. They hold grudges. What does God say he will do? He says, I will correct them with my rod. For what purpose? For this purpose. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn to David, uh, sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. You see, smack dab in the middle of these eternal promises of the Father to the Son that he will be able to carry out the plan of redemption and execute it perfectly and be anointed by the Holy Spirit for the task, right in the middle of those promises is a guarantee that if his people sin, God will correct them. Why? Because otherwise he would be lying to his son. And that is a wonderful and precious promise. Why? Because your repentance after sin is not based, or you know, you finding favor with God while still struggling against sin, is not based on the quality of your perfection in the struggle. It is based upon an eternal covenant which cannot change. This is, therefore, our only ground and foundation for the hope of forgiveness for believers. It is an eternal covenant. I remember a few weeks ago I was listening to a worship song, and it it was a song all about God's love. And as I was listening to it, the worship leader, I was watching a YouTube video, the worship leader then went, you know, during a kind of an intermediary time and said, your mercy endures forever. And that's a very common theme throughout scripture. And yet it struck me in that moment that I was still waiting to understand and trust in more fully that God's mercy is eternal. You see, 10,000 aeons into your existence around the throne, Jesus is not going to bring up that time that you lied to your kindergarten teacher. Or to put it in a different way, he's not going to bring up that time that you watched pornography. Or to put it another way, he's not going to bring up that time that you actually murdered someone. You see, the eternal covenant of God is so sure and so perfect that it's carried out by a perfect one. As it says here, a mighty one chosen from among the people so he could be a high priest, so he could be a perfect sacrifice in the like nature of those for whom he atones. Nevertheless, that eternal mercy and covenant faithfulness that the Father has for the Son is the same as the mercy that he has for me and for you. And that right there is so great of a promise that it's so clear that without the Holy Spirit, we cannot believe the gospel because that sounds too good to be true. And indeed, quite clearly, it is too good to be true. The decree of the Father to establish the Son is the same decree as to save his spiritual offspring. The gospel of salvation for me, therefore, is not an afterthought in the heart of God, nor can it be changed. You see, as believers, we think, okay, now I've come to Christ and God loved me while I was still a sinner, but now I need to begin to get it all together on my own. And the problem with that is that's putting your trust 
in yourself. It's not putting your trust in Christ because it's ignorant, it's spiritually ignorant of the fact that his mercy endures forever. Even weak sins, even sins which should be conquered are able to be forgiven by God, especially for those who are in Christ and united to him by faith. In Hebrews chapter 6, if you were here during our time in the book of Hebrews, you may remember this. The Hebrew writer includes this phrase that God wanted to make it all the more certain to those whom he had promised. Therefore, he swore by himself in an oath to make it fixed on two things, his word and his eternal purpose. This is the point that God's eternal purpose in Christ, which he set forth to redeem God's people, cannot change and it won't short circuit. Have you ever seen an advertisement? Perhaps this happened to you last Black Friday. You see an advertisement in a magazine. You go up to the store. Oh, we sold out of those. How many did you have? Five? Okay. I'm here on false pretenses. That is what this psalmist is saying. That cannot happen in the gospel. Those who put their faith and trust in Christ are guaranteed by the eternal covenant of God. If they are truly in Christ, they will be constantly redirected back to obedience based on the same obedience that Christ exhibits in verse 26, that that obedience which receives the love of God and then is able to respond to God's love saying, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. That's what Paul says. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And also the Holy Spirit enables us to say and to cry out to God, Abba, Father. That is the sort of privilege and promise that we are given here in these verses. And I love the way that this portion of the reading ends because it uses these wonderful pieces of imagery that hearken all the way back to creation and again in the Exodus. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. If you were a a little bit hesitant to believe in the different interpretations of that word offspring, this is a clincher verse for you. Because as we mentioned, and this is an aside, and I just want to reemphasize this, offspring when given in the promise of Abraham as interpreted by Paul in the book of Galatians is a singular offspring. And it refers to the seed which came through Abraham, that is Christ. But here, it's using a relative pronoun, his, a personal pronoun, his, to describe offspring and then his throne. So this is clearly not speaking of David and David's greater son, the Messiah. It's talking about David's Uh, excuse me, the Messiah's offspring and the Messiah's throne. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. David's throne did not endure as long as the sun, just to be clear. Verse 37, like the moon, it shall be established forever. Are the sun and the moon going anywhere anytime soon? No. And yet, Yahweh is able to, because it's our only frame of reference, this is God condescending in language to us, he's going to say, you can trust the sun's going to come up tomorrow. His throne's going to be established forever. And not only is his throne, not only is Christ going to wield his authority over human events and time to bring out his intended purpose, also his offspring shall endure forever. That means you, that means me, we will live forever 
Just as he causes us to stand today by faith, so also he will cause to live forever in love before him. You see, when we get to heaven, it will never get any worse. It will only get better. His love will become all the more apparently sure and unchangeable and certain for those who are putting their faith in Christ. By the Spirit, that is, by the Spirit's writing of this psalm and also by the Spirit's opening of our hearts today to perceive the truth in this psalm, we perceive the love that the Father has for the Son, and that very same love is promised to be the love with which the Father loves us, loves me, loves you. That his covenant with the Son is his covenant for us, for all of those who are now in the Son by faith. Therefore, we ought to not despair when we engage in sin. This season has a a tremendous uh, tendency to cause us to become introspective of our sin. And if we're not careful, it can lead to despair. And sure, it is good to take some time to prepare ourselves for Christmas. There's nothing wrong with that, so to speak, in, in a in a religious sense. There's nothing wrong with setting aside seasons of repentance and seasons of humbling or seasons of fasting. But as we do that, as we walk through this season of Advent together as a church and as families and individuals, we ought to be circumspect about our sin, but never get lost at, we're just going to be disciplined with the rod and not get to his love endures forever. His covenant faithfulness is as sure. As long as the sun and the moon endure, his throne will be established and his offspring will be established. That is what we're given in the gospel. Not mere health or wellness in a time, not certainty of human relationships or anything transient or anything that can decay. What we're given in the gospel is eternal love, eternal joy, eternal happiness by being united to the Messiah. That is how you and I can escape indwelling sin and the condemnation which comes after it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you mightily for Jesus Christ. What would we have without him? And surely the answer is nothing at all. We would be, it would be better for us to have never been born than to not know your son, to not know his love. Father, we pray that as we approach Christmas, we would be able to perceive your great, eternal, unchangeable plan being brought to pass by your Son's incarnation, that we would perceive and behold by your Spirit the great mystery of godliness that Christ was revealed in the flesh. And Lord, that we would see him coming, not just to be God with us, but to also be the one who takes our sin and removes it as far as the east is from the west, and brings us afresh into a new family to become his offspring, spiritually speaking. We pray, Lord, that you would give us these eyes to see and ears to hear these things. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.